Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on the world headquarters of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The world continues to turn in the wake of the horrific events that resulted in the murder of Essex MP Sir David Amis on Friday. Boris Johnson this morning set out his stall for the COP26 conference next month in Glasgow with a plea for investment in a green Britain. It seems that the eco-debate has taken over absolutely everything in government. There is no room, literally, for anything else. Even Bill Gates was getting in on the act this morning. They finally revealed where they will spend the £450 billion we told you they were going to spend last week. That's on loans to people who have got a spare 15 grand lying around so they can rip out their very efficient gas boiler and replace it with a more efficient more expensive and more green alternative. I wonder if this is a secret plot to try and bankrupt all the rich donors to the Labour Party uh, who live in West London, because they're about the only people who are going to be able to afford any of this nonsense. It's absolutely ridiculous. This morning we're kicking off with Dan Hodges and his take on the debate that has been raging since last Friday about the toxic nature of political discourse. Uh, The Mail on Sunday columnist has been fighting off the haters all weekend ever since he pointed out that Labour will never move forward until they lose the idea that all Tories are bad and evil, and only their way is the true religion. 0344 I'm sure I'll have a thing or two to say as well about the Coronavirus Emergency Powers Act, uh, which is likely to be voted through once again today uh, as the MPs get back down to proper business. Coming up later on, Dr Rakiba San will join us with his analysis of what went wrong in the monitoring of the man currently being held over the murder of Sir David, where he was radicalised and how and why no one knew it was going on. Laura Dodsworth is also here with her take on today's vote uh, on the emergency powers. More than likely, uh, that is going to be voted through pretty straightforwardly uh, but the doommongers are already starting to circle the wagons they're predicting more winter misery telling us more cases uh, more masks might have to be worn uh, more social distancing might have to happen more working from home may be required i mean when are they gonna give it all up for heaven's sake we shall also have our second installment of shortage of the day so please do get in touch with anything you've been told is going to run out this morning the big story seems to be uh, that we're running out of nigels for some reason but also uh, there's a massive shortage of civil servants because they're all working from home, uh, or rather actually not working at all. 03444991000. Howard Cox is also here checking in from the Fair Fuel campaign with the news that Coventry is offering grants of £3,000 to people if they stop using their cars. What else are they going to start doing? Well, they just start bribing everybody to behave in the way that they want them to. Vote this way, here's three grand. You know, take your rubbish over there, here's another five grand. It could be a good way to make money, but, you know, who's paying for all this? <laughs> we are, of course. Uh, also, Kevin O'Sullivan's here as well. 03444991000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you might think that after something so horrific that happened on Friday that people would be able to... Um, look at what happened and analyse what happened and try to work out why it is that we still have a problem uh, with people being radicalised on the internet, with young men particularly uh, who may have come here from other countries or who may have come here with their parents from other countries, lived here, uh, been raised here and suddenly gone over to the dark side and decided that all Western civilization is ghastly uh, and somebody's going to have to pay for that and somebody's going to have to die. But instead, rather curiously, the weekend 
Well, we did obviously appreciate uh, and honour um, the man who was murdered, Sir David Amos, who seems to have been one of the most likeable and most liked MPs uh, in the history of Parliament. Um, it, we sort of sort of, kind of veered off into this rather bizarre debate about the toxic nature of political discourse in this country. And Dan Hodges was right in the centre of it. Uh, let's talk to him now. Dan, a very good morning to you. Morning to you. I mean, did it strike you as odd at any time that we kind of started having this conversation almost as early as Friday afternoon that somehow people calling each other names on social media could have led to a, a man being murdered? Well, no. I mean, I think I, I think there are two things. I think I think one of the problems whenever there's an appalling event like this is is, is everybody suddenly tries to turn into sort of a, a, a sort of an amateur inspector Clouseau and mm. tries to immediately find out what happened, why did it happen, how did it happen. There's a police investigation going on. There's a security services investigation going on. They'll get the facts. We'll have a court case. All that will come out. I mean, I, my own view is I do think, and I, this is what I said in my piece, however, that at a moment when a Conservative MP had been, has just been murdered, in the same way when Joe Cox was murdered, people immediately said we need to step back. We need to look at the broader issues, particularly in relation to, to hate on the right, extreme right wing hate, how that may have played a part in, in, in this death and in terms of the broader the broader sort mm. of political environment. I think we need to do the same in this case. I think people need to step back. And what I was just pointing out was saying, and I think now is the time to say, look, this this casual, it's OK to hate the Tories just because they're Tories, Obviously, they're scum because they're Tories. I think it's time to draw a line under that sort of discourse now. And, you know, and, and I think that is a discussion that we do need to have. But is that not part of Labour's problem, though? Because one of the things, if you were to define Labour in its current state, would be we hate the Tories. I mean, they don't stand for very much these days, but they certainly stand for that. Yeah. And I mean, let's take, for example, the issue that everyone's been debating for the last last couple of weeks which is Angela Rayner's comments about all Tories being scum. I, I, I was literally talking to a, a, a Tory minister over the weekend who said he and his colleagues were just bemused when she when they heard this, because Angela Rayner isn't actually the sort of MP who won't be friends with a Tory, right? When they're in the House of Commons, she'll have a laugh with them, she'll have a drink with them, she'll get on, she'll get on with them mm. fine. The reason why Angela Rayner was 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 doing that sort of performative i hate tories is because angela rayner is ambitious angela rayner thinks that that's what she has to do to get on in the labor party in the labor movement and angela rayner is right that is what is expected of mainstream labor politicians mm. by those within the labor party and that is something that people within the Labour Party, if the party wants to move forward, are going to have to start to look at and address it. Yes. But the problem is, is that's the dressing room, isn't it? You know, because while Angela Rayner may be sort of sitting on the bench uh, as, as, as the assistant to the manager, the people who are actually playing uh, are all the people that want her to talk like that. Well, I mean, if you look, I mean, the example, I, a couple of examples I gave in, 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 in my piece, you know, John McDonnell famously said... People need to get out wherever they This was when the, the, we had the coalition government. People need to get out. They need to embark on a campaign of what he called direct action mm. against any Tories they that they they saw or members of the coalition government that they saw out in the, out in the street. We had the situation, in, in my view, there hasn't been enough focus on this. We had a situation at Labour Party conference when Jeremy Corbyn stood up and called, in his words, for solidarity with Claudia Webb yeah. a week before Claudia Webb was found guilty of threatening to throw acid at someone. Now, And he called her a great colleague, didn't he? Yeah, these are not marginal... These are these are not a couple of guys, you know, sitting on like anonymous trolls, right? This is the the, the, the previous leader of the Labour Party, oh. the, the pre previous shadow chancellor of the Labour Party, both has, are still Labour Party members... Jeremy Corbyn was at Labour Party conference being fainted by all and sundry, was there with a, a, other left-wing Labour MPs. How can we have a serious discussion about, about tackling the, the toxic nature of our politics and violence in politics when this is deemed acceptable? Hmm. 
Well, that's entirely right. Because in the end, you know, everybody sort of blames everybody else. I mean, um, you know, Chris Bryant was on with uh, Julie Hartley Brewer yesterday, moaning on about Dan Wooten and talking about how uh, ridiculous it was that he'd been attacked by him. But, but, but he failed to mention that he'd actually called Dan Wooten a nutter at some point or other. And that was how it all started, you know. So everybody's kind of got their own axe to grind. Everybody's got their own... Um, you know, reason to blame somebody else, but but they don't look at themselves and they don't use their own, um, you know, experience. I mean, I know, for example, that on Twitter, you have had a couple of very interesting set twos with one or two colleagues of mine in the media business, uh, we'll still remain nameless. Um, and, you know, it's almost as though they're completely and utterly unaware of what they do and what they say. Well, I mean, the, the issue is, you know, you know, it's my, you know, all of us that are in, you know, in, in, public life to extent all of us in, in, involved in this there are times when we all say things and you know in, in retrospect we'd like that i mean anyone who who, who, who doesn't is either lying or is, <laughs> is, is completely unself 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 aware yes. but 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 but, but w- what i'm talking about here are the specifics and the persistent nature of what i w- would call this this performative never kissed a tory yeah sort of, sort of hatred and that is something which, as I say, we need to talk about on the left. We have huge debates about uh, extremism on the right. You, actually, you, as you're well aware, we have huge debates about what's perceived to be extremism and the, the toxic nature of the media. When it comes to saying, OK, can we now have a debate about extremism on the left? Suddenly th- there is outrage. And the reality is it is not there is not equivalence here. Can you imagine someone like Theresa May? walking around her conference talking about the Labour MPs being scum. She wouldn't do it. It would never enter her head to do it. And if she did do it, people in the Conservative Party would, would say, what's going on? What are you talking about? Yeah. I don't know if you if you attend if you've attended the last couple of Tory conferences. I try and stay away from party conferences, well, Dan, to be honest. Well I I, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us that attend now know that a regular feature of attending Conservative Party conference now is when you're walking in and out of the conference, you are told by security staff, take off your conference badge, because when you get outside, if you don't, when you get outside, you are going to get abuse and you are possibly going to be attacked because people will think you are a, you are a Conservative delegate. Now, that doesn't happen when you attend Labour Party conference. That's not a feature of attending Labour mm. Party conference. And, and, and people now, in, in the wake of this, this this appalling killing, now is the time, I think, to actually say, no, this has got to stop. Yeah. I quite liked your suggestion as well yesterday, which was to say, and I don't know whether, I mean, it, it, it makes you think, which is what I think we should all be doing really at the moment. Um, wouldn't it have been nice yesterday if perhaps people had crossed the chamber and actually spoken from opposite sides of the house from the ones that they normally speak from? Because it was a great day yesterday. It was a reminder of what you know Parliament can be good for. And I know that there's an awful lot, an awful lot of dissatisfaction with some performances in Parliament and with some uh, people in the country who think that, we, that the parliamentarians have failed us all. But when they do behave as they did yesterday, it is quite a sort of nice reminder that we do live in in quite a civilized country. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, we've got to be, you know, I appreciate we've got to be careful about this. You know. We also have a problem in this com- in this country about trying to stifle debate, about trying to censor debate, about trying to police language. Um, you know, you and I have dis- disagreed on, you know, fundamentally on a, on a lot of issues. Yeah. We're still prepared to actually just have a discussion and have a, have a debate about it, and to a broad extent, yes, keep it civil. So that it's important we keep doing that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it would have been nice if people. They, they, they didn't really do it yesterday but i do think you're right i mean i was in the chamber yesterday and it was that house of commons at its best there were really good funny and mo- very moving tributes mm. from from people of all all persuasions but what I, I mean, again this is what i said in in the piece i mean what's what's been striking is the is is, is the warm comments that have been paid to david amis by people within the labor party who yeah. knew him which yes. is which is wonderful and appropriate but what is the point if next week we go back to saying, oh, yeah, David Amos is all right, yeah. but all the rest of us come? But know, as you no say, point. it is it is a, a slippery slope, though, because if you, remember, you probably remember this, because I do, when they um, were, were creating the Scottish Parliament, and one of the big arguments that was made was, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to create a circular chamber 
um, so that it's spherical, so that it's not so confrontational, because we don't want the confrontational aspect of the mace, uh, you know, and the two opposing sides and the kind of bear baiting and the pointing and the fist pumping and all of that. But in fact, the Scottish Parliament probably more toxic now than any other parliament in the Western world, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, and I remember thinking at the time, this is firstly, this is incredibly naive. If you think this is, yeah, <laughs> this is standing a, around the circle, you know, substantive difference. And also, as I said, I, I don't think we don't want to remove the combative nature of of, of, of politics. I mean, you know, the, the the clash of ideas, the clash of policies, the clash of political views is what what makes us a democracy. Yeah. And it's important that that's sustained. But people do need to understand that there have to be limits and there have to be boundaries. And when you get to the point where you are calling for direct action against your political opponents, or you are you are operating in an environment where you are expected to casually dismiss your political opponents as scum, you have to take a look at yourself. And it's, and it's, and it, and it's the left that has to take a look at itself. Now, as you've said, since I wrote the piece, I haven't really seen a lot of evidence that the uh, the message is getting no. getting across. Um, if my uh, if my social media timeline is anything to to to, to go by, but you know it, it still has to be said. Yes, but that's the other problem is that we're now surrounded by people who don't seem to have any kind of perspective at all about anything because they'll make sort of ridiculous equivalence about something else. Like they will say, probably I don't know if anyone's actually said this, but I would imagine they have at some point. Boris Johnson referring to Keir Starmer as Captain Hindsight is disrespectful. Therefore, it engenders a kind of feeling that the guy's worthless, useless, so he can be attacked in any way, shape or form, whether that be verbally or with more levels of abuse. You know what I mean? You know, some people don't see the the different strands because well, I, I certainly don't want to see a Prime Minister's questions where Boris Johnson is frightened uh, to call the uh, leader of the opposition a name, like he came up with, you know, um, Starmer Chameleon, which I thought was great, you know, but I bet he probably won't now use that. No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, and also, you know, we are, we are, we are still, I was going to say we're coming out, we haven't come out of it, that's the whole point. We're still living through a period where, you know, with, you know, the previous leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, he was viewed on the left, by many on the left, as a quasi, indeed not that quasi, religious figure. And any criticism of Jeremy Corbyn was regarded as 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 sacrilege, mm. and is still regarded by by many as sacrilege. I mean, I do. I, I think there is a, a fundamental point here, though. There is a fundamental point on the left, which is about the self identity within the left, which is people on the left, and this isn't just the Corbynites. You see it a lot, especially from the sort of the FDP um, anti Brexit yes. crowd, increasingly. They are the. They have to define themselves as the good guys, and by definition, they therefore have to have to define anybody who disagrees with them as the bad guys. And that is a that is a, as I say, it's not even a political thing. It's it's almost a psychological thing. Yeah. And again, that that is something that has to be addressed. If you're running around calling for direct action against your political opponents, it doesn't matter what they've done. You're not the good guy there, you're the bad guy. Yeah, definitely. And Philip Pullman's one of the worst, uh, but we'll come back to that. So there you are, Dan, if you will. We've got a couple of things to ask you about the Coronavirus Emergency Powers Act, which is going to be voted on today as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the Independent Republic uh, on Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Great to see that uh, you've seemed to have upset a load of lefties, um, uh, Dan, by just appearing on this very show, uh, which tells you what's wrong as well, doesn't it? Dan Hodges is here from the Mail on Sunday. Uh, they're all—they all seem to be frothing at the mouth at the fact that I'm some kind of racist. Uh, yes, <laughs> they are. Well, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of frothing going on. There over really there, has. Yeah. They don't, no, um, they um, collectively um, need to calm down. I mean, most of them um, don't. No, I mean, but I mean, there is a serious point. The reason why there has been this this reaction, actually, they were, you know, this reaction started almost before I even published the piece I, I, I published. Yes. Again, goes back to this idea about their need to be the good guys and their need to be the, the bad guys, and the fact that in this instance. It is tragically a Conservative MP that has been has been murdered. Mm. If, if if it had been a Labour MP who had been been murdered, then I mean they would have been blaming you and me for that yes. that, that, that 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 murder. 
So I think there's an element of this that they're of them almost trying to get their their retaliation in first because they 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 know specifically they they know they don't want to have the sort of debate we're having at the moment. No, and also an awful lot of these commentators know that their very existence is pretty pointless unless they make some outrageous comment from time to time to get themselves on TV. Well, I, I mean, I think in, you know, I think increasingly, I mean, particularly on 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 social media, it is you know we've we've all said it before. I mean, it it, it literally has become almost particularly on the left. It, it it used to be a political tool, and now it, it it almost has just become something that exists in itself. It's people, yeah. all of whom agree on the left, all shouting at people like you and me to excite other people on the on on the left who agree with them. And, and actually, I, I do think this is one of the reasons why the left is in a bit of a political dead end at the moment, yeah. because it is, again, simply in the business of talking to itself and trying to silence yeah. anybody who has an opposing view. And I don't know what you've made of it, but I'm sure you've watched the Blair and Brown documentary on the BBC. And I mean, the thing that, that they did so well, which also the left hate now more than they hate Margaret Thatcher, was that they managed to get people to vote for them who didn't normally vote Labour. And that's surely the point. If you can't do that, then you're just going to end up in an ever smaller and smaller concentric circle of people um, who all agree with each other. But you'll never get into power. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I have watched it. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, one of the things that I think would be really interesting, though, is what, you know, how successful would Blair and Brown been if they'd been operating in the social media age? Yeah. If if, if Blair and Brown had been faced with opponents within their own on per, in their own party on the left who could have mobilized and and, and uh, in the same way that, that the people on the left do now and whether or not you know the journey that process of modernizing labor mm. would have been that much harder i mean i think i think it probably i think it probably would it might have been but i still think they would have done it because they were consumer operators whether you know whether i know a lot of people just dislike blair immensely mandelson all of those people but i mean they had many skills that, that, that nobody in the Labour party appears now to have at all no, I mean, I think the thing that came out for me was just the, the you know, the, the absolute focus and the absolute p- passion and the absolute desire to to change and modernise the Labour Party as quickly as possible. So the Labour Party could be a credible political force again. Mm. And with the best will in the world, I wouldn't I wouldn't. He has his faults. I wouldn't lump Keir Starmer in with, with those on the left who I've just been describing earlier. But with the best will in the world, I mean, you look at Keir Starmer at, at, at his party conference and there was an opportunity for him there to really lay down the law and really take these people on and start to drive these elements I'm talking out of his party. And he just, he clearly didn't feel able to do it mm. and he doesn't feel able to do it. And I think that's why Labour's got, you know, in for a, a pretty hard time of it over the next few years. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I was going to get into the coronavirus stuff, but we're out of time. Don't worry, we'll get you back on about that when it all starts to go. Um, uh, well, I can't really say, can I? Dan, good to see you. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Dan Hodges, Man on Sunday commentator, uh, talking about the problem that the Labour Party has. And if ever you want to know why the left uh, is in such trouble and why the left does not appeal to ordinary, basic, interesting, you know, fair people, just have a look at some of the nonsense that's going on on Twitter right now, because some of them have literally lost the plot just because Dan Hodges has decided to talk to me. They can't stand it. They literally cannot bear it. Dry your eyes, guys. Don't worry about it. We'll see you in about 55 years. Maybe you might be able to form a government then. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Dr. Rakeem Hassan, research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, because obviously um, the other conversation that's been going on since Friday about the murder uh, of the MP, of course, is that um, David's Law is now being talked about in order to halt online abuse. But also uh, one of the big stories this morning on the front page of The Times uh, is that the MI5 people should have more control over something called Prevent, because we're told that Ali Harby Ali, uh, who is thought to have been uh, the man who is uh, being questioned by the police at the moment over the murder uh, of Sir David Amos. Um, He was radicalised, we suspect, or the police suspect, over the course of the last couple of years, maybe slightly longer, online, uh, by the likes of Anjum Chowdhury. Let's find out what Rakeem makes of it all. Rakeem, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much for talking to us. I mean, this prevent scheme doesn't seem to do very much preventing, does it? Because it seems to me that it's a bit of it's a. It seems on the face of it to be, first of all, a voluntary uh, thing that you sign up to if you wish to sign up to it, and if you do sign up to it, you don't really have to do very much. Well, as you say, Mike, 
que it's a voluntary participation model. And I think uh, considering that the suspect in the case of the terror-related murder of Sir, Sir David Emmis, it has been reported that he was referred to prevent some years ago, but he wasn't part of the scheme for very long. So I think understandably, much of the British public will be questioning the effectiveness of prevent and our broader counter-terrorism uh, counter structures. Yes, because the problem, uh, it seems to me, is that the, 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 the authorities are now saying there could be many, many more of these bedroom radicals, as they're calling them, mm. people who have been um, doing nothing but sitting at home during lockdown, basically being radicalised into extreme Islamic fundamentalism. Well, I think that that's something that I've written about a great deal, Mike, that with the lockdowns associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, there, there was the risk that uh, vulnerable individuals would spend more time online and that they would enter dark territories on the Internet and that could contribute towards radicalization under lockdown. So it could be the case that we, as, as we have opened up, that we are living in a very different society and that phenomenon of bedroom radicals presents a significant terror threat. Yeah, absolutely right. And it is a terror threat that is very real, but also almost impossible to track, isn't it, Ricky? Well, it's incredibly difficult. As you know, Mike, we saw the suspected terrorist attack in Kongsberg. Yeah. Uh, in, in Norway, where the suspect there was considered to be uh, self-radicalised. And I think that that is a particular problem from the Islamist terrorism, um, in terms of Islamist terrorism, who's traditionally perpetrators involved in Islamist terrorism. They're usually affiliated with uh, well-established Islamist organisations. Well, here we, it could be the threat of self-radicalization, people being uh, radicalized uh, within online arenas, uh, which which uh, encourage uh, violent acts. Mm. But th these arenas online, Mike, they could be loosely organized extremist influences. That, that So it's, we're looking at these kind of uh, online spheres, which operate partly or, or completely outside of traditional um, terrorist organizations. Right. Because, I mean, Anjum Chowdhury has been busy telling anyone who would listen that he couldn't possibly have radicalised this guy because he hasn't been online uh, for six years. But uh, I'm, I'm sure he's being slightly, uh, shall we say, careful with the truth there, economical, you might say, uh, because there's many ways well, of being Anjum Chowdhury on, online without actually being Anjum Chowdhury. No, absolutely. And I think that that needs to be reflected in our counter-extremism efforts, uh, the degree to which there is extremist content which has been hosted um, by various platforms uh, on the internet and the kind of role that might be playing in radicalising vulnerable individuals, especially those who are socially isolated. Yes. No, exactly right. So, I mean, as far as the change that Priti Patel can make as the Home Secretary in terms of mm. trying to, to keep a closer tab on these people, I mean, would it make any difference if MI5 had more control over Prevent? Well, I think firstly, if I could just um, go back to um, the murder of Sir David Emmis, what I find quite remarkable is the discourse and narrative which is surrounding the case. We've heard about uh, our confrontational political culture. We've heard about social media anonymity. And I do feel there's far too many people in, mainstream, in the mainstream media and in mainstream British politics who are deflecting attention away from the terror threat posed by Islamist extremism. Right. So we talk about, we've seen people talk about David's law associating um, that with clamping down on social media anonymity. Mm. If people truly wanted to do something serious and meaningful in Sir David's memory, what they'd do is step up their efforts in terms of tackling Islamist extremism, Mike. Yeah, but I mean, there is no doubt, is there, that in most of the cases in Britain, certainly, of, you know, sort of homegrown terrorists, if you like, who have mm. gone uh, to the Islamic uh, fundamentalist side, almost all of them, I think, without fail, have been on the radar at some point or other um, and somehow somebody took their eyes off them. So it's wrong to say that we've learned lessons from anything because we haven't, clearly. No, we clearly haven't. And Mike, there's, there's one after the other. You have these fundamental system failures. And that includes cases of people who have been supposedly rehabilitated and de-radicalised, who then go on to commit terror-related atrocities. So there needs to be a very thorough review 
of uh, how our counterterrorism structures work. I find it quite remarkable, Mike, that in terms of the cases referred to prevent and then eventually adopted as a channel case, mm. there's more cases of right-wing radicalization than Islamist radicalization, but that's not reflected in the overall terror threat faced by this country. And the biggest threat, as a number of counterterrorism officials have said, is presented by jihadists. Mm. So I think that fundamental mismatch really needs to be explained for by the public authorities. Yes. Oh, I think so. Um, and, and unfortunately, and the reality is never a nice one to have to confront, but unfortunately, what happened on Friday uh, in that church in Essex is the kind of thing that it's almost impossible to stop. I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk of surrounding MPs with 24-hour security. That's never mm -hmm. really going to happen. It's impossible to protect people that, you know, for, for the entire period of their lives that they're around for. Um, and, and unfortunately, we are probably going to see more of these attacks as time goes on, and there won't be much we can do about it. Well, I, th I think that there's a real risk of... Uh those kind of low tech, uh, those low tech terrorist attacks. And it's, it's, uh, as we saw in Kongsberg in Norway as well, they're extremely difficult to predict, Mike, because they um, they're using relatively accessible weapons and there's there's little logistical preparation required for those kind of low test, uh, low tech terrorist attacks. And if, we, if, if the overall terror threat um, increasingly moves towards that direction, it makes uh, our counter-terrorism efforts all the more complicated. Mm. No, you're absolutely right. Good to talk to you, Rakeem. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Rakeem Hassan, the research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, uh, on the next move, really, uh, for the authorities and for the security services, because they are hidebound uh, because they can't follow absolutely everybody. And there li are literally thousands and thousands of people out there uh, who could do harm to ordinary members of British society, as well as MPs, as well as celebrities, as well as people who might be uh, in the public eye. The trouble is, what do you do about it? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, Laura Dodsworth is here. Laura, very, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Nice to see you in a white jacket when it's not summer because I, I like a white jacket. Well, Some I'm... people think they're only in, in for the summer, aren't they? No way. No, I'm eking out summer as long as I can. Yes. I, this this will get me through to today. December. It is weird. It's I nice. Got, I got out of the car this morning and it was a bit tricky coming in because somebody shut the Rotherhithe Tunnel, which is never a good idea. And... Um, it was like there was some sort of Scirocco blowing through London. It was like I was in the sort of Arizona desert. It's a very blowy very day. Very warm. 
as well. It's yeah, it's nice. Unseasonably warm. I lost my hairstyle on the way here, but it was very nice. Your and, hair looks and actually, fine. Well, thank you. And it made me uh, made me feel like we're being blown about on the winds of destiny and the yes. winds of change. Well, there you are. I was blown and blustered here with good fortune, destiny, and common sense. Well, if you are going to be blown around, it's always good to end up in a place of safety, which is where you are now. I'm here. And, I'm here and, now. Uh, look at this booster rollout too slow is the headline on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. So I heard this morning a government minister, Anne Trevelyan, who I think is the vaccines minister, I'm not really sure, it's hard to keep up, basically talking about how well things are going, but unfortunately people aren't getting their boosters fast enough um, because there is a mood abroad that if you don't get the third one, um, then you're going to get COVID, which shouldn't worry you if you've got the two vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. Also, they're saying, oh, and of course, you know, children are getting it now as well. Well, they're not, actually, because that figure that I think that you quoted last week, 11% of uh, 12 to 15-year-olds, is still the same. It hasn't gone up mm-hmm. because people just don't want to do it, right? I think I think that figure will go up, though, once they have the walk-in centres, because some people haven't been vaccinated because it's just simply not happened in their school yet because of the logistics of the rollout. Mm. But it's still I still don't think it's going to go too high. Probably won't go higher than Scotland, which was, what, about 36% last week? Yeah. Yes, that is much higher, isn't it? And, yeah. do you, and is that, do you think, because they've got those outside yeah, they've, centres? Yeah, they've, they've got mass walk-in centres as well outside school. Some kids don't want to be vaccinated in school, and logistically it's it's not rolled out yet. I think the thing with the booster, let's see what happens. It, I mean, obviously it's going to make sense for some people because, you know, we've seen the, the efficacy of, of the vaccine be knocked down percentage mm. point, point by percentage point. Another thing, you know, it does wane, and so you need a booster. But, I mean, I was talking to somebody this week who felt really ill after their their vaccines and doesn't want the booster mm. because they didn't have a good experience. Um, I think there's also some concern about vaccine passports and yeah. thinking, well, what am I going to just have to keep doing this forever? Well, exactly, because so if I, they're going to argue that, that, well, of course, the vaccine wears off, so you have to get a new one every so often. Well, how often is that going to be and how long is it going to be for? Because we don't get told that. I mean, mm. when Vaughan Gethin was on last week from Wales with um, Julia and she said to him, you know, how long are you going to be doing all this for? He couldn't tell her. Mm. He said, well, we don't know. It would be wrong to make a, a, a deadline which we would then have to break. And it's like, well, why would it be wrong? Why can't you make a deadline and make it conditional upon see how it goes? Mm. Well, what would be right is to say to people, here's the booster if you want it, then let them have them if, have it if they want it and not tie it to a mandatory vaccine passport. Just leave it to people's individual responsibility and choice and informed consent. Yes, I think absolutely right. And you want to talk about that informed consent because the Coronavirus Emergency Powers Act mm. uh, runs out, doesn't it? I, guess, I mean, I'm not quite sure how well, it works. Does it run out today and then no, they vote it back in? It, well, there's a sunset clause so that most of the provisions in the Coronavirus Act expire March 2022. Right. Um, but there's a vote every six months. So what's happening today is that um, MPs will vote on the motion as it is. They don't get to quibble or debate. They don't get to say, let's keep this bit. Let's, let's let go of that bit. Right. The government presents, this is what you vote on an MP's vote. I think it will go through. Mm. And there's a few reasons. Um... First of all, the worst schedules have been dropped. So, you know, the the most criticised powers aren't in it anymore. That's schedules 16, 21 and 22. Okay. So 16 is the um, power to direct the temporary closure of schools. Right. 21... So that's gone. It, it won't... It, it shouldn't be in what's being voted on today, okay. no. Right. Um, although, all right, let's talk about that. That's not how schools were closed. Mm. We all know schools were closed, right? Yeah, they, they shut, they didn't were. they? They certainly did. But they didn't quite shut because they were open for the children of key workers yes. and, and certain types of children who might have... You know, might be like vulnerable. vulnerable. Yeah, yeah vulnerable. Um, and so what happened, if you remember the Simon Dolan court case mm. last spring in yeah. May 2021, the government said, oh, no, we've schools haven't closed that was merely advice which right. which they followed yes. so the government managed to close schools without actually legally directing the right. closure of schools so it's good to see schedule 61 go mm. the fact is it's not needed to be honest in order so for the government still, to close schools so they could still shut them without that anyway through some kind of words. sleight of hand yes. and actually what we've got happening at the moment is that um Children, for instance, we'll, we'll come on to the testing. Let's All right, let's come on to the testing in schools a bit more. The other schedule that's going is Schedule 21, and that is the one that allowed individuals to be detained if they were potentially infectious, um, and also your children to be detained. So th- when this... When this was drafted last spring, I might sound a bit extreme, but I actually I actually had a big cry when I mm. read it because I thought, how can this be happening mm. in the country yeah. that we live in? 
the idea was if you were potentially infectious, which at the time could have been anybody, anybody yeah. with a little cough, right. there was the power to detain you or your children and forcibly treat you and quarantine mm. you. So that's gone, which is great. That yes. was a that was an unsettling Why schedule. Why would you put that in there, though? I mean, that would be my question. What on earth would would make you want to do something like that? I don't know if you saw the piece of the weekend, uh, which was written by Matthew Said about a guy called Mark Warner. Huh. Um, did you see that? I've written about it. I wrote wrote a little rebuttal piece the same day. Oh, right. OK, good. Yes. Well, so let's talk about that, because I see this guy as being part of something much bigger. And we didn't know about him. Now, you may have done because you were delving deeper into this maybe than a lot of people were. But I certainly never heard of this guy before. And to see somebody like that being waltzed into Downing Street, into the heart of government, to sit down with the prime minister, to convince the prime minister that lockdown's a good idea based on his projections of artificial intelligence, knowing nothing about medicine, knowing nothing about the physical Mm. nature of the virus, knowing nothing at all about what would actually happen. It's quite ridiculous, isn't it? Not to say frightening. I think there was a lot that was wrong with that article and with the very notion that that's what happened. I think we're rewriting history. It's a revisionist version of history already. Mm. Worse than that, it's mythologising the the hero, the genius, yeah. as Mark Warner was called. Now, this is... Yeah, the cleverest guy it, in the room type stuff. Yes, but um, in, in that piece, Syed says that Dominic Cummings says that Mark Warner is the most ethical man he's ever met. Well, there you go then. That's all right, isn't it? But this isn't how things work in a democratically elected country. Right. You don't get one genius waltzing in and imposing an experimental draconian lockdown on the country. Why weren't the epidemiologists, the doctors, the sociologists and the disaster planners in the room? That's not a decision for some little-known data scientist mm. and the Prime Minister to but make an isolation. But this is what Dominic Cummings' mantra is, though. Dominic Cummings' mantra is, forget about the civil servants, they're worthless. Mm. Don't listen to anyone who's not really, really intelligent like me. And mm. he's so intelligent, he couldn't even keep his own job, right? Mm. And he was stitched up by Boris Johnson's wife, which yeah. is not to say that in a sexist way. But, I mean, if he was that clever, how did that all happen to him? Well, you see, you think you haven't heard of Mark Warner, but do you remember when Dominic Cummings said there was a man he wanted to be endowed with kingly authority and to run the country like a kind of dictator? Yes. That was Mark Warner. Was it? That's Mark Warner. See, people like Dominic Cummings, also for me, uh, have no business running government. I mean, he was a very good uh, soldier and a very good lieutenant or maybe even a good general for Mm. Boris Johnson in the whole Brexit um, campaign and getting Brexit done and the whole Leave Leave EU uh, organisation and all of that boat leave but he should never have been Downing Street in my view well but also his very idea that during a crisis you want a dictator to make decisions is dangerous effective leadership happens in more flat hierarchical teams Mm. where you can make decisions without judgment where you can red team people shouldn't be made by a dictator now Mark Warner may well be a genius data scientist but he's not a sociologist or an epidemiologist he couldn't have foreseen the unintended consequences of lockdown so it's quite a troubling piece so I've uh, I've rebutted that that's on my my sub stack plug plug I'll, yeah. I'll go find that and retweet it because I, I have sent out the other Matthew Said piece out. So I'll have a look at that and, and yeah. make sure that, that goes on. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted no, you. No, no, that's OK. I love our little digressions. Mm. Um, right. The other schedule, which was a very criticised and troubling one, was Schedule 22. That's going. And that gives um, government the right to prohibit events and gatherings. Mm. So this is great. So in theory, schools shouldn't be shut, although they can be if they want. Um, potentially infectious people can't be forcibly detained. Yes. Phew-y. Wow, that's um, good. Yeah, exactly. And gatherings and, and events shouldn't be restricted. So I think it will be voted through because those those most worrying powers have been removed. The other thing is, you know, MPs are going to want to keep their rebellious powder dry mm. for, for other votes. So I suspect MPs that really object to the coronavirus act will just abstain. Yeah. I think it will go through. Also, you mentioned the fear-mongering before. There's been a lot of fear-mongering again recently as we come into just the Just over the last few days, actually. Prepping and priming us yeah. for probably vaccine passports and other restrictions. And, of course, um, there was also that cross-party report, mm. um, coronavirus lessons learned. Um, not many lessons learned in that report. It's 145 right. pages of opinion. Very little is evidence-based. There's still no cost-benefit analysis of lockdown. No. Its conclusion is that we should have locked down quicker. So if that's the kind of mood that's being built up, obviously they're not going to vote against the Coronavirus Act, which allows government to impose some rules, mm. uh, some laws um, under those emergency powers. But it does have this sunset clause of March 2022 anyway. The thing that we should really keep our eye on and what it would be great to see coming out of today, um, the big goal should be reviewing the Public Health Act yeah. because the Coronavirus Act um, was brought in 
under the Public Health Act. It's really the Public Health Act that's responsible for lockdown mm. in that sense. Yes. So um, Francis Hall, the barrister who represented Simon Dolan in that case last year, has written a great piece about why um, we need to review the Public Health Act. Mm. In terms of what exactly, though? In terms of the way that it's rolled out or in terms of the new rules that have been put in or... Or what exactly? Well, so a couple of suggestions, and I'm I'm not the legal eagle. You should get on somebody like Francis yeah. Hall to talk about this. He would be brilliant on it. I have heard him talk, and so I'm going to do a really yeah, bad no, job Francis. of rehashing good. some of his points. Yeah. But for instance, um, that you know, it could be having longer to debate whether these huge draconian laws are brought in. Mm. Perhaps they need to be voted on every two weeks, not every two years yeah. or every six months. Right. Um, for there to be stronger uh, barriers right. um, and thresholds before something like a lockdown can be implemented. Mm. This all happened very easily. Well, just, it did. Just and I think, hours of debate. Yes, just hours of debate. Because what I think they should also do, um, and I will take you up on that and get Francis Hoare on, because Peter Hitchens and I were talking about this, because he wrote a piece at the weekend saying, we've now been so conditioned to this kind of behaviour mm. and this kind of instruction, if you like, from the government, yeah. you know, that we're now expecting it. And so he says there may well be another lockdown, but it might have nothing to do with COVID. They might decide to lock you down for some other reason. And the people will go, oh, well, we've done this before, so we can do it again. And I think what we should now do is, is make the government admit that we are no longer in a state of emergency or whatever we were in yeah. when it was you know, at its height, when it started in March last year, all the way through to the sort of end of May of this year. We are now in a very different place. We are, as far as I'm concerned, more or less back to normal. I know that the, the doom mongers will say, mm. oh, yeah, but infection rates are up and people are going to hospital more and, you know, there's still people dying from it. Well, yeah, there's still people dying every day of all sorts mm. of things, but that doesn't mean that we are any longer in an emergency. So they should declare that and say we are now back to normal. Anything else that we do mm. as a draconian measure of any kind has to be single-handedly voted on one by one. I quite agree. And just to make this really clear, although I think MPs will vote this through today, I don't think they should. I think symbolically it should go. And we're not we're not in an emergency. And so we shouldn't be under emergency legislation. No. If there's anything, it should be primary legislation. Right. You know, if there's a situation that needs tackling now with where we are now, we should have primary legislation, mm. not I emergency agree. legislation. I, mean, I was shouting at the radio this morning, as I often do coming in, um, because all these conversations that we're having now about around... Mm you know, the um, the new boiler systems that we're all supposed to be putting in, heat pumps and all of this. And it's almost as though I was listening to a politician, it was a Labour guy, I think, talking about how, well, in order to achieve net zero, we must do this. And so they've invented an entire sort of end point that we must now race towards without really explaining why we have to race towards it and what it's going to do. It's not really going to do anything. It's the problem with the enshrinement of key performance indicators and net zero is the ultimate KPI. Net zero, zero. It's the ultimate KPI and everyone's just like racing towards it. But all the other considerations just drop away. Well, mm. what's that going to cost us householders? Don't forget, we should have had all those costs by COP26. Still have, we still don't have no. them. Well, Boris is going to spend £450 billion of our money loaning it out to us to get a third of a heat pump. Well, it all comes from Why? taxes in the end, yes, doesn't it? Exactly. Um, one more thing to say about the Coronavirus Act, and this is really important. It is a terrible, it's a terrible piece of law. Every single um, prosecution, every single criminal prosecution was overturned mm. that was brought about under the Coronavirus yes. Act. As of May 2021, um, the CPS found that not a single case of a potentially infectious person refusing to comply with the lawful instruction had been prosecuted, so all 270 charges under that legislation were dropped. Amazing. I We've also, never also, had a piece of legislation that's so faulty. No. I also remember the day when uh, loads of people were handed part tickets by the police, but they were all trying to drive to Cornwall. Do you remember that? They were all stopped. They stopped loads of people on the M5 and made them all turn back and issued them all with fines, and not one of them had to pay one. It wasn't against the law, because it was against guidance. Yeah, they couldn't prove that it was a, they'd broken any law. They couldn't, they couldn't work out what law they'd broken. And as you were saying, it's very confusing, isn't it now? Yeah. And the, and like with so many things, it was it was the poorest and the most disadvantaged who suffered under that. The very first case of a criminal conviction, Marie Dinu, you know, big surprise. She was black it, and and she found herself in a police cell. She wasn't given the right representation and she was given a criminal conviction. That was the very first case under the Coronavirus Act and it was overturned as they all were. Right. So where are we exactly once this is renewed? Are we in the same place as we were yesterday once it's renewed or are we in a different place? Well, some of the schedules will be dropped. 
the most pernicious ones will be gone and it should have a sunset clause of March 2022. Right. I had a sleepless night over this when it was drafted. Mm. Uh, last spring but you know the nightmare should hopefully be over by yes. spring 22. Well because there are still those out there who will say this is all just being prepared for something terrible I mean I'm not one of them I don't think that you know the government is going to do anything awful and ghastly and terrible like they did in Australia but I'm sure people in Australia didn't think they were going to do that either. Do you know what I mean I just don't see it happening but I still I still agree with you this act should not be passed it should be chucked out mm. immediately. Well, let's just see how toothless or bold our MPs are today. Yes. Let's see what debates come out of today. Mm. Hopefully some really decent, meaty ones about the Public Health Act. Right. I think that's the best to hope for yes. today. And as we approach half term, um, <sighs> there's more, more voices than ever now saying stop testing our children. Yes. Now, back when mass testing in schools was proposed, you had incredible public health expert Dr Alison Pollock saying don't do it. You had evidence-based medicine doctor Dr Carl Hennehan saying don't do it. They were both right. So many of the people that warned that this would be problematic were mm. right and all of the problems have come to pass. So as of the summer holidays um, an average of I think children had lost 107 days of school. Yes out of 190 Something in a school like that. year. Yeah. Um, that equated to a billion days missed up until the school holidays. Now, as of now, children shouldn't be missing school unless they've had a positive PCR test and they're symptomatic. But schools are still doing this asymptomatic testing. How do I know? I've got boxes of the things yes. at home. You know, just chucking them at us twice a week. Yeah. They're still you telling... for those as well, by the way. Well, we are through our taxes. And I guess they're all sitting around and they, they want to do something with them. I, I don't... But it's not the advice. They're not supposed to be doing asymptomatic testing. Mm. So there was a report in The Telegraph, the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health has urged that COVID testing in schools stops because of the disruption yes. to education and to, and to children's health. Um, there was an Ofsted report that showed that little children have really gone backwards, developmentally gone back into nappies. Mm. Reading and writing standards have slipped. We know educational standards have slipped with GCSEs and well, A-levels. Well, nobody's taken the exam for two years, probably. <laughs> no one's been taking exams. I mean, they've done their best. I had a child who did GCSEs through all of that. Mm. But also depression, anxiety, self-harm um, and eating disorders yeah. have gone up. We have to stop mass asymptomatic testing yeah. of children the other thing is but again will the government turn around and say well it's only guidance so it's up to the schools to stop because the schools of course don't have to do it either yeah but the government creates this in the first place with the fear-mongering and the propaganda and the um the primary legislation and the advice mm. and then schools and local authorities keep going because by that time it's acquired a life of its own and people are nervous yeah. They're nervous, you know, there's teachers who are frightened about themselves, right. there's parents who are frightened, and it's acquired a life of its own. And I think it just it just has to stop it now. Does. It's so damaging. And surely half term is the ideal point at which you just say, right, I'll tell you what, let's just stop now. As I mm. think I think I said to you, my kid's school, they were supposed to be um, reviewing it at the end of September. Well, I haven't heard anything. Well, not just your school, the whole country. Yeah. There was supposed to be a review of mass testing in schools by the end of September. Well, we haven't had it. And there's a theme here, Mike. We haven't had the costing for how we hit net zero. We haven't had the review of mass testing in schools. We've never had a cost-benefit analysis of lockdown. We haven't had a scientific justification presented for vaccine passports. Mm. This keeps happening over and over and over again. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's the government that needs to go back to school and sit in detention until they've produced all of this evidence yeah. they keep promising us. And all of this fear-mongering they're doing now, which is, oh, well, we must take precautions in order to make sure we don't have to lock down and we don't have to shut businesses and businesses don't have to close. Well, they don't have to close, period. The only reason they closed before was because the government made them. Simple, right? Yeah. I, I mean, we, we really have a government here which is characterised by an obstinate avoidance of producing evidence when it goes against yeah. their legislation and the direction they want to take. Mm. And it's just not acceptable. No, and I think that's where the parliamentarians need to stand up and say so. Let's hope some of them do. Yeah. Well, we're out of time again, oh, I'm afraid. No, I could keep going. I know. Shall I see you next week? I know. Look, why don't you come back next week? Okay. And let's talk about Bitcoin next week because uh, or that's rather, something that I don't even understand. Central bank digital currencies. Everybody go and look up the video by right. Rishi Sunak on central bank digital currencies mm. and let me tell you a little bit more about it next week. Okay. Well, we'll give you some homework of your own. So you go home and do all that. And we will see you then. Laura, lovely to see you. Thank see you very then. much indeed. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Now, I've heard some harebrained schemes to stop people driving. I mean, in London, Sadiq Khan prefers to make it impossible for you to actually go anywhere. Uh, this morning, they closed Rotherhithe Tunnel, which pretty much made the entire part of southeast London that I live in a car park. So you couldn't actually drive anywhere. You couldn't also go on a bus. So all you could do is walk or cycle, which is kind of what they want. In Coventry, they've taken it one step further. In Coventry, they're paying people not to drive. Howard Cox is here. Howard, how are you doing? Hello, Mike. Nice to speak to you, my nice friend. Nice to speak to you too. Uh, how's the good fight going? <laughs> well, as you know, tomorrow week there's a budget. And uh, before I get on talking about Coventry, go, I'd love to hear your viewers actually sign up to Fairfield UK to help us fight uh, what we're hearing, a potential increase in fuel duty, yes. especially with pump prices rocketing so high. Um, we're hearing that the Rish is thinking that under a green agenda, everyone accept it, that they're quite happy to pay more for their fuel in tax. The trouble with all this green agenda nonsense, right, is that if they do drive people off the roads, they're going to lose an awful lot of money in tax revenue, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, every year, 35 billion comes in from fuel duty and, and the VAT on the fuel duty and on the whole uh, pr- price of filling up. And uh, that's about the fourth or fifth largest income to the Treasury. Yeah. How, and, and at the moment, we're all subsidising electric vehicles who drive around for nothing. Well, this is what people don't get, right? Because if we are ever get to, getting to the point where there is uh, only electric vehicles on the roads, what do you think they're going to do? You think they're going to go, I know, maybe we'll start taxing cars again. Well, we're coming to the road charging and the road pricing argument again, which is going to be so difficult to put together. I mean, if someone that does loads and loads of miles, are they going to pay the same as what they would have done if they were paying for fuel duty? Or the person, you know, I'm all for paying for what you use. It's not a problem. But can it ever be equitable? Can it ever be fair? Well, it can't. As long as they keep penalising people for driving and penalising people for, for, for being in one particular form of transport, which most people in this country use because it is the only form available to them in most parts of the country. You know, uh, the revolution's all very well for parts of central London. But you try telling people who live in, uh, you know, parts of rural Kent or rural Lancashire uh, or rural Scotland uh, to take the bus or get a bike somewhere. There's no chance of it. It's absolutely impossible, Mike. It, I mean, the, the whole thing is stupid. This whole 2030 cliff edge ban for diesel and petrol vehicles. It's, we're only eight years away from that. And we, we haven't got a national grid that can cope with it. We haven't got anywhere near the sort of batteries that can large, uh, drive 400 miles and charge up in about five minutes. If that happened, then I'd accept it. But we, we're just not... Well, there's no common sense in Whitehall whatsoever. And we're seeing this hopefully next Wednesday or Wednesday week. The, uh, I, we're calling for a cut in fuel duty with pump prices now averaging 140, 145, the highest they've been for a decade. Uh, I think it's about time giving drivers a break and put more money in their pocket, especially hauliers, Mike. You know, who well, can that's the invest- other thing. I mean, we're supposed to yeah. be fighting off an HGV driving uh, shortage. We're supposed to be having supply chain issues. What do you think making petrol and diesel more expensive is going to do to that? Well, this, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. And as we know, that 60% of what goes into the tank goes to the Treasury. And, you know, they're cash cows. They're easy targets. They don't pick on any other things. You know, well, you know what, what, what we're hearing, actually, you know, that the, there is a real chance that it could go up by five pence. And uh, um, I, I, if he does that, the red wall seats would just collapse. Yeah. I mean, they'll never forgive the Tories, you know, the so-called local tax uh, party. Uh, the, the angle will be absolutely incredible. Mm. I really, absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about Coventry. We'll come back to the green agenda in a minute as well, because this is all part of the same thing. I believe Coventry is the first city to try this out. One, uh, what do you know about it? And two, why Coventry? Well, I, I did an interview last night on a much inferior radio station. You'll be pleased to know, Mike. Shocking, um, shocking. Well, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it was. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, and they're but a little bit left wing. In fact, my uh, killer sort of final right to apply was uh, cut off because they started bringing out uh, the councillor I was up against, the oh, yeah. councillor. He, he he was bringing out things like deaths on roads due to pollution and all those sorts of things oh, that yeah. they're doing. But I threw back, said, "Where's your evidence?" And he couldn't answer that. I also said, "How much is it going to cost?" And they're talking about, well, I said, come on, how much did it cost? They finally got it out of them, £1 million. That's 300 cars. Right. Just in, uh, just in, Co- just in Coventry. Yeah, that's, that's the, they're asking for 333 cars not to drive, and they give you £3,000. I mean, where is it? Um, I keep saying this. Where is the evidence this will work? Why are you picking it? Why is it so anti-car? What's going on? This is virtual signaling economics of the madhouse. It really is. And also... Why do they want people not to drive? You know, do they want to reduce congestion? Uh, they never really seem to give 
any proper reason. They always say, oh, we want to get to net zero as, because they've just made that up, right? Well, it's, it's all emotion, as you know. The irony of this is they're saying you can use that £3,000. Obviously, you can't go to the Bahamas with that money, but you can drive, go into a taxi, an Uber. And guess what? Taxis and Ubers are diesel. Right. I mean, the, 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 the whole, the, yet again, there's no joined up thinking. Everything about our road transport strategy, both nationally and locally, is t totally anti-car. Right. And they're not thinking about the long-term situation that there are ways to lower emissions. We all want to breathe cleaner air, but we, I'm afraid that diesel and petrol are getting cleaner by the year. Why are we going through this process of actually penalising people, penalising the economy, without actually asking the very people that uh, use the roads, mm. drivers? Yeah. There's no consultation whatsoever, Mike. Well, the usual rules apply as well. I was driving around the back of uh, Downey Street a few weeks ago, um, and I've never seen, I don't think in one place, even in a dealership, as many Range Rover Sports parked in one place. I kid you not, there must have been about 30 of them. You know when you come down those back steps down the back yes, of I know them to well. St. James's Park? The next time you yeah. go, have a look right behind where the sort of sentry guy is. Yeah. There's a little car park there, and there's about 30 or 35 Range Rovers, all the same, all grey, all the same colour. Some of them presumably might be electric, but, I mean, I don't know. Um, most of them won't be. Um, and here's a government who drives around um, in, in, you know, gas-guzzling cars, which I don't object to, but why the hell are they trying to stop us from doing it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds derogatory when you say gas guzzling, but most of them are very efficient now and they're very clean. What comes out of the tailpipe compared to 10, 15 years ago it is so much cleaner. We're getting better. Why are we being told what to do and what type of modal transport we should have? Electric vehicles are great, but they're not great yet. And likewise, we've got hydrogen cells, we've got e-fuels, all these sorts of synthetic fuels, and we've got fuel catalysts. And I've told, mm. talked to you about this many times before. Those are being ignored for this green virtual signaling process. Right. And I don't know where Boris is coming from. I really don't understand the man. I used to, I recommended him. I always said he would be best for the driver, but he most certainly is not. No. And, and I, you know, I've withdrawn my support for the Tory party in that respect. And an awful lot of people have as well. And I think the more he pushes this green agenda, the worse it's going to get for him. I was talking to somebody from Net Zero uh, the other day, and they were telling me that they're, they're all going up to Glen Eagles, you know, they're up at COP26 in Glasgow. Of course, they can't go to Scotland without going to a luxury a hotel that happens to have a golf course <laughs> and a spa attached to it. But apparently everyone's been going to be given an electric car. So there's something like 200 electric cars being provided, but they've only got one actual electric charge point. So yes. they're having to bring in a load of diesel generators uh, to charge up the electric cars. <laughs> well, I've heard the same thing, but I thought they were using vegetable oil uh, stuff. I mean, you couldn't write it, could you, this script? It's, well, it, where it really do you think, yeah, but, you know, they've still got to farm and, and source vegetable oil. I mean, it's not, you know, that's not a process that's particularly green, is it? No, none of it is. It's cool. And don't forget, they've got 30,000 police up there. Uh, or protecting these uh, world leaders, etc. I mean, how are they getting there? How are they being put up with? Yeah. I mean, how are they being heated? Well, how the other being... great one, no, the other good one is they've got two cruise ships coming up the Clyde to put everybody in because apparently there's no hotel rooms to be found. Presumably they're all full of immigrants that arrived at Dover some weeks earlier. So they've got to put them all on these cruise ships, which, of course, are run on diesel. Guess what? <laughs> i mean the point is we, we are in a, a time of madness but the point is there's a lot of apathy out there and people are accepting this mm. we're being brainwashed uh, uh michael and, and that's one of the problems we've got a real problem with that and we need to actually not do the extinction rebellion or the insulate britain approach of gluing ourselves to roads but we do need to actually uh, show our revulsion to being told what to do right. we do not need this uh, green agenda uh, impacting on drivers and costing the economy billions. No. Well, or, or do the thing that I always advocate for what they should be doing, which is make it cheaper. You know, if you want me to buy a diesel uh, car, uh, or rather not buy a diesel car, buy an electric car, make the, op make the electric option cheaper. But the electric option for my car is not cheaper. In fact, it's at least half as much again. Absolutely right. I mean, uh, I, I drive a hybrid car and it's a very expensive car. And yet electric vehicle is the same thing. If, if, if I've been told, well, why don't you buy a Nissan Leaf? I'm six foot four right. and I've got three or four people, family and all these bits of pieces, dogs and all the other right. things. I do not want to go use a Nissan Leaf and I do not want to just drive 70 miles and worry about getting back. Right. No, those exactly. are the sorts of issues. And until all those things are fixed, the same with these heat pumps they're trying to flog to us, right? You know, the idea that somehow you're going to have fifteen to 20,000 quid lying about that you didn't know what to do with, and you think, oh, I know, I'll just rip out the gas boiler that I've got, which works really well, and what I will do is I'll spend another 20,000 quid 
completely ripping out everything in the house, including all the radiators will have to be moved, uh, putting in these huge storage facility tanks in the garage, if you have one, using some under under sort of soil uh, mechanism in the garden. So you've got to dig that all up. You know, yep. who does he think is going to be able to afford to do any of this? Well, and the other thing also, heat pumps don't heat the house. All they do, they create a situation whereby, as I understand it, these experts have told me, they just get a, a minimum temperature. Yeah. It's not enough to even have a bath. It just keeps it warm. You still need another uh, <laughs> heating source to actually heat the pumps well, and heat the water even further. And this is what I was... Uh, there was a piece in the Times uh, today, I think, about a couple who reported back after having installed one of these heat pumps, their electricity bill actually went up £1,000 a year. Yeah. Um, yes. And the rooms in which they wanted to sleep were never hot enough to sleep in, so they didn't use them upstairs. Uh, and also because the, the house became so cold... It got mouldy. So it was a complete disaster. I mean, we don't live in a hot country. If we did, you wouldn't need that much heating. You know when you go to these houses in Spain and they've got those lovely marble yeah. floors and in the summer they're really yeah. cool, they've got shutters and all of that. You know, they don't need much heat in the winter because it doesn't get that cold. You know, we live in a cold country. Absolutely right. I mean, but again, we're going back to the same story. This whole thing, we're being forced into these situations. There's been no consultation. Have you ever been asked? Have you ever received any uh, question that said... Do you agree with heat pumps? Do you agree with electric vehicles? No. Do you agree with the, the 2030 ban? I've never seen no. those. But I'm, I'm also not one of the supposedly 75% of the population that wants more COVID restrictions imposed on me either. Well, well, I, well that's another <laughs> argument. I totally agree with all what you're saying, Mike, as usual. Yeah, I mean, it is ridiculous, isn't it? But, but I mean, I was, I was kicking the car this morning, not least because the traffic was so awful that I had to literally go. I mean, you'll know this, and apologies to anyone who's not from London, but I had to drive around the opposite way. I'm trying to get... Uh, to to you know Canary to, not to Canary Wharf to London Bridge from Rotherhithe. I had to go yes. all the way round down to uh, Deptford, effectively back up yep. through uh, wow. the back of the old Kent Road, right in that way in order to get here. It took me an hour. Uh, because literally everything around the Rotherhide Tunnel was at a complete standstill. You couldn't go in either direction. They also happened to have shut down the road, which runs from Surrey Keys to Greenwich. So you can't actually go south anymore on that road. It's been shut for the best part of three months. I mean, you know, you just couldn't make it up. Well, and you, and you had to pay a congestion charge for the privilege oh, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the 15 quid for that, you know. Um, they get you coming and going. But the point is, I was listening to this uh, Labour Party spokesman on energy, and he was banging on about this net zero as if it was something that was real. You know, they've invented it. Net zero doesn't matter a fag end to anybody. It means nothing. You know, the world is not going to be safer. You know, you're not going to be breathing air, which is any better than it was before. It's nonsense. Well, I, I, as you know, I represent drivers, hard-pressed drivers, mainly about the cost of motoring, but obviously I've been asked to do lots of other things. And I'm always being accused by the, the people on Twitter, as you've seen them, I've been absolutely abused all over the place. I've had stuff thrown through the letterbox. I've been, my house has been uh, actually made into a petrol station where loads of people coming in that uh, fuel shortage. Uh, and I'm accused of being a climate change denier. Um, well, aren't you? I'm not. I mean, just no, admit I, it. No, just admit no, it, no, Howard. Come on, hands up. No, no. <laughs> no I, I believe there is climate change, but it's nothing to do with man. That's no. what I'm saying. Well, exactly. I, I mean, we, we're used to these sorts of things. I mean, I go back, I'm 67 years of age. I remember the 1963 uh, snow in, in, in April. Yeah, uh, yeah but you see, they tell you that that doesn't count, right? Because that's just no. an event. Like when I said to somebody last weekend, it apparently would appear that the ice cap is at its thickest it's been uh, in the history of uh, Antarctica. Um, yeah. And they go, yeah, but that doesn't count really because it's just no. an, one event in uh, one moment in time. Oh, right. Okay, then. Fair enough. Anyway, well, listen, so we, we've got to run, Howard, but great to talk to you. Take care of yourself and uh, keep fighting the fair fight for fair fuel. Howard Cox, go and find his uh, website and go and sign the petition to make sure the government doesn't put the price of petrol up any more than it is already. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 